Hello and welcome to the November 2nd, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to give a quick overview of what's new in the journal. Let's get right to new articles published on annals.org during the last week of October. First is a randomized controlled trial that found that the addition of genotypic resistance testing to routine care did not improve virologic suppression among persons whose first-line antiretroviral therapy for HIV failed in HIV clinics in Uganda and South Africa. These results reinforce the critical need for and persistent challenge of finding effective interventions for persons who have virologic failure after initiation of antiretroviral therapy. Virologic failure in HIV predicts the development of mortality. Genotypic resistance testing looks for the presence of mutations that are known to cause resistance to specific drugs and is a standard of care after failure in high-income settings. Yet resistance testing is rarely used in sub-Saharan Africa, where virologic failure in HIV is a major public health threat. In this trial, known as the REVAMP trial, researchers enrolled 840 adults in South Africa and Uganda with HIV and viral load levels of 1,000 copies per ml or higher and randomly assigned them to immediate genotypic resistance testing or usual care, which included adherence counseling sessions and repeated viral load testing. Viral load was tested at nine months. The proportion of patients who achieved viral load levels below 200 copies per ml did not differ between the two groups. The authors of an accompanying editorial noted that the study has significant strengths, including its real-world setting in public health ambulatory clinics in sub-Saharan Africa. However, participants were receiving non-nucleoside reverse transcriptor inhibitor-based therapy at study entry, which is no longer the standard of care in much of the world. The authors suggest that future research explore the use of drug resistance testing in managing virologic failure with more contemporary antiretral therapy such as integrase inhibitor-based regimens, as optimal antiretroviral management is the key to further reductions in HIV morbidity, mortality, and transmission worldwide. The second article I'll highlight is another randomized controlled trial. This study found that treatment with the drug belimumab after treatment with rituximab significantly decreased disease activity and symptoms for patients with lupus without increased risk for infections or other adverse events. The researchers recruited 52 participants prescribed rituximab for refractory lupus at 16 centers in England to participate in their study. After four to eight weeks on rituximab, patients were randomly assigned to also receive intravenous bolivimab or placebo for 52 weeks. The researchers found that compared to rituximab alone, bulimimab suppressed the number of B cells and significantly reduced disease activity and symptoms. Combination therapy also reduced severe lupus flares by threefold in the context of patients who had refractory active disease at the onset of the trial. According to the researchers, these findings support further exploration of bulimimab after rituximab as the first combination biologic therapy for patients with lupus at least in those whose disease is refractory to conventional therapy and or requires high corticosteroid dosages. Next is a brief research report that examined the adoption of hospital at home programs in the US. Hospital at home provides acute hospital level care in a patient's home as substitute for traditional inpatient hospital care. 
The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services in the U.S. announced a comprehensive strategy to enhance hospital capacity in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic, including an acute hospital care at home individual waiver. Hospitals qualifying for the individual waiver receive full hospital-level diagnosis-related group payment for services provided at home. Researchers analyzed data from the Acute Hospital Care at Home CMS dashboard and linked hospitals holding a waiver to the American Hospital Association's 2019 annual survey to determine characteristics of hospitals that participated in the program. The analysis showed uptake among large hospitals was 8.9% and major teaching hospitals was 13.2%, but few rural hospitals, 0.1%, had thus far received a waiver. The authors note that despite apparent optimism about the potential of hospital at home to improve disparities among rural and urban areas of the United States, limited resources to launch new care models at rural hospitals or requirements for patients to be within a certain distance of the hospital may limit effectiveness in these populations. They suggest additional research and technical assistance tailored to rural areas to improve uptake. About 8% of Medicare enrollees have low English proficiency, and improving their care is a priority. Anecdotal reports suggest that low English proficiency may pose a barrier to COVID-19 vaccination. To assess language-based differences in concerns about and willingness to receive COVID-19 vaccination among Medicare enrollees and perceptions regarding COVID-19's contagiousness and lethality, the authors of the next article analyzed data from the Medicare Current Beneficiary Survey, COVID-19 Fall Supplement, a nationally representative cross-sectional telephone survey of Medicare beneficiaries. They classified respondents taking the survey in Spanish as low English proficiency and those taking the survey in English as English proficient. Based on self-reported ethnicity, they compared Hispanic low English proficiency beneficiaries to both Hispanic English proficient and non-Hispanic English proficient beneficiaries. The survey, which was conducted prior to the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines, asked respondents how likely they were to get vaccinated when vaccination became available. In summary, they found that among Medicare enrollees, persons with low English proficiency were less likely to intend to get vaccinated than those who are English proficient, despite being insured and having higher test positivity rates and knowledge of COVID-19 seriousness. Concern about side effects was a major driver of vaccine hesitancy. The findings support efforts by Medicare and Medicare Advantage plans to communicate the risks and benefits of COVID-19 vaccines to this high-risk group through linguistically and culturally appropriate outreach and engagement in care. Authors from the University of Queensland's Center for Clinical Research reflect in the next commentary on the successes and challenges of Australia's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and discuss lessons learned. In addition to travel restrictions, which were enacted early on in Australia, the authors cite early availability of diagnostic testing, effective contact tracing, and strict adherence to quarantine for returned travelers or exposed individuals as important measures that succeeded in preventing sustained community transmission. When transmission was detected, lockdowns, social distancing, and mask wearing in public spaces, workplaces, and secondary schools were rapidly utilized. These approaches led to the reduction and cessation of several outbreaks in Australia, according to the authors. Despite many successes, Australia has faced some important challenges. 
vaccination rates remain relatively low throughout the country, which may be due to reports of adverse reactions from the AstraZeneca vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine only recently became widely available in Australia. In addition to low vaccination rates, mental health issues have plagued the nation. With restricted travel and prolonged lockdowns, Australians are reporting worse or much worse mental health than pre-pandemic. A pragmatic randomized control trial comparing pain-related outcomes for patients with chronic pain receiving long-term opioid therapy found that patients who received cognitive behavioral therapy in their treatment plans reported improvements in self-reported pain and greater reductions in pain impact after one year. Long-term opioid use targeting chronic pain can be associated with significant adverse health outcomes. Alternative approaches to chronic pain management have been extensively studied in patients with specific types of chronic pain in specialty settings. However, this study is the first examination of alternative treatments with broad chronic pain in patients who are treated with opioids in a primary care setting. Researchers from Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute randomly assigned 850 adult patients taking long-term opioid therapy for chronic pain to receive either usual care or cognitive behavioral therapy embedded in primary care. Frontline clinicians delivered the intervention that included talk therapy and yoga-based adaptive movement. The patients were assessed quarterly over 12 months for self-reported measures of pain and disability. The researchers found that patients receiving cognitive behavioral therapy had greater reductions in pain impact and pain-related disability compared to the usual care group. In addition, one in four patients receiving cognitive behavioral therapy reported more than 30% reductions in pain compared to similar reports from one in six patients receiving usual care. Patients in the cognitive behavioral therapy group also showed greater reduction in benzodiazepine use, but there was no impact on opioid usage in either group. Although the effects of the intervention were modest, they persisted through the final 12-month follow-up. Given the limited efficacy and safety of long-term opioid treatment for chronic pain and increasing demand for non-pharmacological treatment, the researchers believe that this type of intervention holds promise. Also published during the last week of October, is an article describing the Quadis-C tool for assessing risk of bias in comparative diagnostic accuracy studies. If you do these type of studies or want to be a better critical reader of such studies, it's worth taking a look at. Moving on to new material published on November 2nd. This summer, the National Institutes of Health convened a virtual summit to summarize existing knowledge and identify key unanswered scientific questions about anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies to prevent and treat COVID-19. Next is an article summarizing the discussion that occurred during this summit. Panelists highlighted advances that have been made using anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies for prevention and treatment of COVID-19. To date, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has issued approval for one antiviral drug to treat hospitalized patients and granted emergency use authorization for several single and combination monoclonal antibodies to treat persons in the outpatient setting. The experts also discussed ongoing studies to determine the potential benefit of high titer convalescent plasma antibodies or hyperimmune globulin. Like monoclonal antibodies, these convalescent plasma and hyperimmune globulins have shown benefit in some instances when administered early in the disease process. 
according to the experts, results in outpatients have been more encouraging than those in inpatients. In one trial, patients taking a monoclonal antibody combination therapy had a 70% reduction in rates of hospitalization or death compared with placebo. As preventive therapy, monoclonal antibodies could offer immediate protection for unvaccinated persons exposed to SARS-CoV-2 or those who have no specific exposure but work in high-risk settings. They might also be administered to the rare patient who cannot be vaccinated due to allergic reactions to components of the vaccine. The experts also discussed several areas where knowledge gaps exist and how to address them. One important area of study they identified is alternate routes of administration for monoclonal antibodies and the potential effects of monoclonal antibody infusions on COVID-19 vaccine immunogenicity. Several studies addressing these scientific questions or knowledge gaps are ongoing. According to the authors, the continuing emergence of SARS-CoV-2 variants underscores the critical need to identify classes of monoclonal antibodies that can be successfully and effectively combined and to develop and evaluate broadly neutralizing antibody cocktails. The next article reports a study that found that over the past 20 years, the number of physicians with whom primary care physicians need to coordinate care for Medicare patients has increased by an astounding 83%. The researchers analyzed Medicare claims made between 2000 and 2019 and found that a larger number of Medicare patients are making more appointments with a larger number of specialists each year, while engagement with primary care physicians remained constant. As of 2019, 30.1% of Medicare recipients saw five or more physicians annually. According to the data, these changes mean that the number of other physicians with whom primary care physicians must coordinate care for Medicare patients has increased by 83%. Simultaneously, researchers learned that one-third of Medicare patients see only specialists. These observations raise concern about the dominance of specialty care in the U.S., fragmentation of care, ballooning health care costs, and the burden on primary care physicians to coordinate patient care. Next, researchers from Boston Medical Center described their decision to build a hospital-wide biorepository for COVID-19 research samples and share challenges they overcame to coordinate the biorepository's management with patients, researchers, and care teams. They call on hospital research teams, funders, policymakers, and infectious disease and public health communities to support biorepository implementation as an essential element of future pandemic preparedness. Also new is the latest issue of ACP Journal Club and the latest episode of the Annals on Call podcast. This podcast episode discusses the important role of international medical graduates in U.S. medicine. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I encourage you to go to annals.org to read some of the new articles I've mentioned. And you can earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Stay well, and please return in two weeks for the next Annals Highlights podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.